and New Year's resolutions have in common? They both should be carried out. All right. But just in case, keep that in mind. Uh, we, you don't have to carry them too far. We have the little, we have the uh, wine room upstairs, so that's set up and ready to go. And uh, anyway, just kind of keep that in mind. Uh, story is told it was a Saturday morning, and uh, Jim, who was an avid hunter, woke up ready to bag the first deer of the season. And he w went downstairs to the kitchen to get a cup of coffee, fill up his thermos, and head on out. And to his surprise, he found his wife, Alice, sitting fully dressed in camouflage at the kitchen table. He looked at her and said, uh, what are you up to? And she said, well, honey, since it's our 20th anniversary, I thought I'd go hunting with you. It's something I've always wanted to do all during the course of our marriage and have never been able to do it, so I thought that would be a great thing to do today. Now, Jim, though he had many reservations and had forgot his anniversary, reluctantly thought it would be a great idea to take her along. So he takes her along and he says, okay, listen, if you see a deer, take careful aim on it, and I'll come running back as soon as I hear the shots fired. So he takes her out, he sets her up on a tree stand, has her nice, safely tucked away, knowing that there's no way in the world she'll ever shoot a deer. She couldn't hit an elephant. And so as he was leaving, he walked around. He said, what I'll do is I'll go out to the perimeter. I walk around in big circles, and any deer in that area will come running back past you, and then you shoot the deer. And, uh, and that'll be my anniversary gift to you. And... Uh, so, you know, most women would appreciate that as an anniversary gift, being the sensitive, compassionate guy that Jim is. So anyway, he wasn't gone 10 minutes, and he heard, boom, boom. And he's like, what in the world? And he goes running back, and he hears two more shots. And then as he gets closer, he hears his wife arguing with someone. And he's arguing, and the argument gets louder and louder, and sure enough, as he gets through the clearing, he sees his wife. She's holding a rifle. She sees a cowboy with his hands up over his head, saying, okay, okay, you can have your deer, but let me get my saddle off it first. <laughs> yep, things aren't always as they first appear. You know, and uh, we're learning that as we've been examining what the Bible has to say as far as the definition or God's definition of love we begin to see the stark contrast between how this world thinks and how God thinks. What God says about things versus how man says that things are to be. You know, this whole idea of love and how God defines love versus how man defines love is probably best illustrated in an event that took place in recent history. In fact, the 30th anniversary of this particular celebration took place last summer. And the plan seemed so wonderful at the time and if you recall what that is, more than 100,000 people would camp out in a pristine glade in upstate, uh, upstate New York where everyone would get along and love each other. For those of us who remember that particular movement, one of that, the followers that believe would change the world, actually began in the summer of 1967, which was called the Summer of Love. And for those who may have been members of the group, the group were called hippies. And uh, their slogans were, well, they, they had some interesting slogans. They were noble ideas, love, not hate, peace, not war. And uh, one of its cornerstones was free love, if you'll recall. And uh, hippies thought they could ignore God's standards and that they could ignore thousands of years of social rules and uh, gratify themselves with free sex, free drugs, booze, alcohol, and rock and roll. And so the Woodstock Festival in the summer of 1969 culminated this national love-in. And indeed, uh, of the expected 100,000 hippies that were expected to attend this particular festival, 
1.5 million long-haired people wearing beads and feathers flooded the area for three days of music. And as a teenager, oh yeah, and I remember you were there. You had a lot more hair then. And as a teenager growing up in uh, Pennsylvania, and don't forget that room's waiting for you at any moment, so. And as a uh, teenager growing up in uh, Pennsylvania uh, at the time, I can recall watching news coverage and thinking how cool all of that seemed. Or no, I think the word was groovy. And, uh, but appearances can be deceiving. You know, if you ask yourself the question, was Woodstock really a place of peace and love? And I think the answer could be found in a quote that was uh, taken from Peter Townsend who was a member of the band The Who, which played during Woodstock, when he was quoted as saying this, What was going on off the stage was beyond my comprehension. There were stretchers and dead bodies and people throwing up, urinating and defecating in public, people having bad acid and drug trips. I, I thought the whole of America had gone mad. Tempers flared, people were assaulted, a concession stand was almost ripped apart, roads were clogged for a 20-mile radius, nudity, sex, and drug dealing were going on everywhere. One young man was crushed in a sleeping bag by a backhoe, and when the uncontrollable crowd went on their way, they left behind acres and acres of trash and filth. What was supposed to be a monument of free love and brotherhood was actually a hedonistic mess resulting in total chaos. Selfishness and disregard for others reigned. The summer of, quote, love had turned out into being nothing more than a disaster and disappointment. Love, without question, is the universal need of all humanity. Every one of us wants to be loved. But what is love? And how does the world define it in contrast to what God has to say? See, tragically, our world understands very little about true love, and that's why we have to turn to our mighty creator and our perfect judge to find out what his take is on what love is all about. You know, according to the Bible, love is the supreme expression of God's personhood and flows out of his goodness, and it affects all of his other attributes. In fact, the Bible does not say anywhere that, that God is holiness or that God is power, but the Bible clearly teaches us that God is love. And God's heart overflows with his supernatural and unconditional love for each one of us. The psalmist proclaims the Lord is good and his unfailing love continues forever. If you, if you really stop to think about it, you know, God's love is the only reason that any of us exist. See, love always needs an object. And we are the object of God's love. We, as human beings, are why God created his power is how he did it. But the reason why God did what he did was so he can express his love towards us. And that we, in response to this great love, you know, we love, why? Because he first loved us. And even when we were sinners in rebellion against God, God was still seeking us out to love us. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus himself said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. See, God's ultimate expression of love is overflowing. It's like a river of grace and mercy without detracting in any way from his holiness and his righteousness. And so as we turn to the Bible, God expresses himself in ways that we can clearly understand so that there will be no, uh, there, there will be no mistaken identity 
so that uh, things as they appear in the world can be checked against the standard of objectivity. Is this really how God says love is supposed to be? Is Woodstock really a reflection of God's love, or is it what man calls uh, nothing more than an excuse to do what we want to do and to use one another and abuse one another and, and to do those things that come uh, naturally to human beings? So if you've got your Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians 13, where we'll pick up in this biblical dis description of what God's love is all about. 1 Corinthians 13, starting with verse 1, as we look at this, this is the biblical definition of God's love. Now, it's obviously not everything that God has to say about love, but it certainly is uh, a definition or an, an illustration example of all that God's love is supposed to be. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting with verse 1, we read these words. It says, If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong and I become a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions, uh, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. For love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into an account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And we'll stop at this point. If you recall in our last uh, message, uh, we learned that 1 Corinthians 13 is composed of three paragraphs in the Greek. Each paragraph uh, reveals something different about God's love. Verses 1 through 3 uh, shows that God's love is necessary for all that we say and do and that without it, life becomes meaningless and empty. We went into great detail talking about even if you could speak all the known languages of the world and even the language of heaven, but you didn't have love, God's love in your heart to express that which God has taught you or that you know, then you become nothing more than a noisemaker and you cause grief in the life of those who hear what you have to say. That all of our communication with one another should drip and be saturated with the love of God because people won't care how much that we know until they know how much that we care. It says, and if I have the gift of prophecy, which is being able to foretell not only the future, but declaring the truth of God. If I knew everything of God and I had all the knowledge that God had to give me, anything and everything, all the mysteries of God, and many of us struggle with the mysteries of God. God, why do you do this? Why do you do that? And if you knew all those answers, even if you knew all of that, and yet you didn't have love, the Bible says that we're nothing. And you could have the greatest faith in the world that you could even remove mountains. The gift of faith, a great faith. To remove mountains and you didn't have love behind what you do, then it would profit you nothing. It's interesting, you know, so, much, so many of us put so much uh, credence or, or, or weight upon the, the knowledge that this world has to offer. And I like, I heard in passing a conversation this past week, I thought I'd share it with you, I thought it was interesting. And it was a... Uh, it was uh, two people talking about, you know, one guy was wrong and, you know, and he was devastated by being wrong and he looked at his friend in this debate they were having and said, you don't understand. He says, you know, I have a degree from Harvard. You know, people expect you to be wrong, but when I'm wrong, the world makes a little less sense. You know, I thought, wow, can you imagine the arrogance of people that actually believe that? But the world is filled with people that are like that. And many of them are Christians who believe that they know so much more than others. And that arrogance, or that, that arrogance uh, comes through in their conversation. And without love, people won't even listen to what it is they have to say. And so as we look at this, the first paragraph, we went into great detail. The second paragraph uh, starts with verse 4 and ends at verse 7. That's why I chose to stop there. 
but uh, it talks about, uh, and it's going to be our focus of this message and also next week, but it just talks about or shows that God's love is uh, radically different than our natural human behavior. And when we get into it, you'll begin to understand clearly why that is. God's love, as it's expressed through us, will be radically different than our natural human behavior. And we're going to see how difficult the struggle is as we struggle with allowing God to love others as He wants to love them through us, with us being His only hindrance to being able to do that. And then the last paragraph is verses 8 through 13, and we'll examine that in future messages, but it'll show that God's love is greater than spiritual gifts, greater than faith, and greater even than hope. So let's look at paragraph number 2, verses 4 through 7. And what we're going to learn in this particular paragraph is how love treats others. How God's love treats others. Now before we do that, uh, we need to take a look at this from the standpoint of being able to go through step by step and understanding the, the context that's here because there's a wealth of information. It's a gold mine of information. But as is so often the case, having information actually does us no good unless we're willing to apply what we learn. See, God, God warns us oftentimes, the Bible tells us that we're to be what? Not just hearers of the word, but doers as well. Hearing it without doing it is a dead faith. There's a point in time where God, as he convicts us in our hearts, that you know what, you've heard the truth, and we should ask the question, now what should I do? And that's when we look at this passage as, a, as love treats others, it's going to be a very practical application of everything that we learn. We're to leave here, not even leave here, we're to start here and carry it with us throughout the course of our life. How love, how God's love treats others. And that's exactly what we're going to look at in the, in the course of the subject. But when we go through it, if you've got your Bibles, look in front of you at verses, verse 4, for example. There are two positive qualities that are outlined for us or laid out for us very clearly. It says that God's love is patient, God's love is kind. Then he goes and helps us to understand what God's love is by telling us what God's love is not. And it would be a lot easier for us to learn what God's love is by learning what God's love is not because most of us are doing that which God says we shouldn't be doing. So it would be a lot easier to take that and grab it and go, wait a minute, God's saying that's not what I'm supposed to be doing, I'm supposed to be doing this. And that's why I believe there's so much more emphasis on what God's love is not versus what God's love is because as you see when we go through this, for example, God's love is not jealous. God's love is not what? God's love does not brag or doesn't parade itself. It says God's love what? Isn't puffed up or arrogant. God's love doesn't behave rudely or act becomingly or pout to get its way. God's love doesn't uh, seek its own in a world that demands my rights. God's love doesn't demand my rights. God's love is not provoked. Well, he started it. God's love, what, thinks no evil or takes into account a wrong suffered. God's love does not rejoice in inequity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. If you take a self-examination as I did going down through that, I find that it's no wonder that it's difficult to apply these things because the majority of times my first reaction or my first response is to do exactly what God says I shouldn't be doing. And I catch myself, or God catches me and says, what are you doing? Ah. Help. It's important to note also the word love is actually used only twice in the paragraph, although some translations show it three or four times. But the only two places you'll find the word love, look at verse 4. 
is in verse 4, and it's followed by the definite article, which is the. And actually, it should read this way. If you want to make a little note in your Bible, put it in front of it because it will help you understand the significance of everything that God says falls into these two characteristics or qualities. The love is patient, okay? Which is the love of God is patient, and the love of God is kind. The love is patient, <clears throat> the love is kind. Everything else that's in this paragraph or in this section is going to uh, describe the fact that God is patient and God is kind. So the love of God is patient, the love of God is kind. And what's interesting as we look at this is that it'll help us to understand what the rest of the text is all about because those eight negatives flow from those two positives and we're to turn it around and make it into something that's right before God. So as we go down through this, uh, you're going to see that those natural reactions are those eight negatives. And the unnatural or the supernatural or the spiritual reaction should be the two positive qualities. So giving you kind of that overview as an outline, we'll go ahead and take a look at what this whole idea of God's love being patient is all about. So it says that God's love is patient, the love is patient, the love is kind. And if you stop and think about it, if there's one quality above all others which people seem to have trouble with, it's patience or long-suffering. Think about it. Is being patient a natural response to people around us? Patience, long-suffering. The Greek word means taking a long time to boil. You know, I think about that, you know, when I'm cooking dinner for the family. You know, I think about, you know, you're always checking the stove. Is the water boiling yet? You know, it takes a long time for, for, some, for water, for example, to boil. And um, that was a cooking illustration. I mean, you know, you give me a hard time about sports all the time. I'm trying so hard. But, but we can get into that in a second. But, uh, but it takes a long time to boil. And you know what's interesting is it's always used in respect to people and not things. In verse 7, the word is used in respect to things, but when it talks about God's love, God's love is patient always, and the word is always used in respect to people. Guess what? God never gets frustrated over things. Why? Because all things are under his control. Think about that. God would not get frustrated hanging, as we mentioned, Christmas tree lights. He wouldn't. Why? Because, you know what? There wouldn't be one that would choose not to light for him. It just wouldn't happen. See, but our, you know, we struggle with patience. We talk about patience with people and patience with things. And what's fascinating is there's such a, such a uh, maybe a, a parallel between the two or there's such an intermixing between the two that oftentimes we get, we get frustrated with people and we get frustrated with things because things aren't under our control. They're just not. In fact, you know what? I mean, a few years ago when I was less patient than I am today, there was a time where my wife likes to wrap Christmas tree lights very tightly and neatly because there is a proper way to do this. And I never understood that. I just thought you just throw them up there, light it up, they light up. That looked good to me. But no, you've got to weave them in and out of the branch so that you weave them into, well, how's it go? You weave them into, into the, the middle part. What's that called? We're in trouble. The trunk, yeah. You weave them into the trunk. 
and you weave them out to the tips of the branch so they're right on the tip. And there's a lot of ladies going, amen, hallelujah, she knows her stuff. <laughs> and so, but, but what you don't realize is when you do the little weave thing, and there's like 60,000 lights on this tree, when you do the little weave thing and the tree dies two weeks later, when you try to unweave it, man, there's stuff just flying everywhere. So in my less patient days, before I became such the godly man that I am today before you, I started to unweave a few branches because the deal was if she'd put them on, I'd take them off because I'm a lot better at destroying than I am building up. And so last week was very convicting to me, by the way. So anyway, uh, I just decided to share the lights with the trash man that day. I just started cutting them up, but they're good lights. Not anymore. Watch this. I just chopped them all up. They were just all chopped up, took them on out and just said, hey, have at it. So anyway, um, see, I can get frustrated with things, but thank God he doesn't. I mean, can you imagine God getting frustrated with a star? Hey, you're not supposed to be there. What are you doing over there? I mean, he just doesn't. Everything's under his control. So God doesn't get frustrated with things. But you know what's interesting is his patience extends to people. Why would that be the case? Because people are not under God's control until they submit to his control, and he still gives us the freedom to choose. God's patience has to extend to people because God has given us the freedom to choose to be submissive to him or to rebel against his authority in our life. So God has to be patient towards people, and we're going to take a look at great detail of this. Long-suffering or patience is a fruit of the Spirit, and it's mentioned in Galatians 5.22. It's not natural to exhibit this kind of patience towards people. How many of you, being honest, find yourself struggling in this area of your life? Impatience towards people. Raise your hands. Now, Here's an interesting thing, and I thought this was kind of ironic. I was thinking about it the other day. Because there's an irony of being impatient with impatient people, yet still thinking you're patient. Can I repeat that for you a little bit? Isn't there an irony in being impatient with impatient people and still thinking that you are patient? Some of you are like, what? That's too much. It's too early in the morning, man. The coffee hasn't kicked in yet. Like, where's the, pass out those little uh, donut holes. We need some sugar here. But, you know, there are people that are like that. They think they're patient, but they're impatient with impatient people, yet they don't think that that is a fault. Well, because they, what? They make me impatient. If they weren't impatient, I wouldn't be impatient. How many of you have struggled with this for a long time? How many of you are tired of struggling with it? How many live with a person that's impatient and they're tired of struggling with it? Hallelujah. Oh, everybody raise their hands. Oh, good. Well, isn't that good news? That's good news because there's hope. You know, admitting you need God's help, that you can't handle things, is the first step to having patience. Consider this. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 tells us, commands us, that we are to be patient with all. I don't know about you, but it's easy to be patient with people that don't bug me. You know what I mean? With people that know how to drive. <laughs> with coaches that know how to coach. With teachers that know how to teach. Now, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't have a problem with any of those. With managers and bosses who know their stuff. But, man, you get some people in your life that you just go, Wow. They don't deserve patience. I can think of a few other things they deserve. 
See, the concept of patience toward people is best understood by the word long-suffering or slow to boil. Now, the way I see this is, since God is love, and the love of God, or God's love is patient, perhaps the best way to look at this is, you know, God pours his love out within the heart of the believer through his Holy Spirit. So the best way to understand what's involved in being slow to anger or patient is to study the examples in Scripture that demonstrate the patience of God. And there are numerous examples that are found throughout Scripture. I've chosen just three to help us understand how God's love is patient. And if God's love is patient and God's love has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit for those who have come to faith in Christ, then that same patience can be demonstrated toward people just as God has done so in the past. So turn with me in your Bibles to... Um, well, in fact, let me read something first, and then we'll turn back and look at it. You turn to Genesis chapter 6, and I'm going to read something to you from um, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3 that will tie into what we're going to go back and look at. In 1 Peter 3.20, we read the words, "...who formerly were disobedient when once the long-suffering or the patience of God waited in the days of Noah..." while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through the water. Now that first Peter reference goes back to Genesis chapter 6. And starting with verse 5, we read the account that is later uh, um, uh, repeated for us in first Peter chapter 3. But in Genesis chapter 6, starting with verse 5, we read these words. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. It says, And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals, to creeping things, to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I made him. It says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In verse 3 of the same chapter, we're told that, man, that God's spirit would not strive with man forever because he's flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. So as we look at this account, the Bible tells us that man's heart was continually bent on evil. And that God, not that he changed his mind about what he did, but he was broken and sorrowful at the condition of, that man had chosen to take. The direction that man had chosen. Because as I said, God had given man a choice. You can eat of all of the fruit in the garden, but of this one tree you cannot eat. And man chose to do that which God said not to do. As God's word was brought into question by the tempter Satan himself, the Bible says that man chose to do that which was wrong before God and chose instead of being in fellowship with God and in harmony with God in submission to God, that man chose to go his own way. And that's why, because of sin, one, this sin of Adam, sin has entered into the world, and through Adam, every one of us have, have fallen under the curse of sin. And so this rebellion that's in the heart of man, that's why when I say the natural response will not be what God says in the Word of God, but it will be that which comes from the very fruit or the root of sin itself. The natural human being is in rebellion against God. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. None of us are righteous. I don't care how much you think you're okay. The Bible is the objective standard that says you're not. And it's just so subtle sometimes, like those who are impatient with impatient people and think they're still patient, there are those of us who think that we are okay with God, and God says, you don't see it yet, do you? 
And so we use the objective standard of God to measure where we are as far as God says. So God, as he looked out of creation, said, I am just, I'm sick, of, I'm sick to my stomach at what I see going on around me. And he said, because of that, it says that he has chosen to wipe off or blot off the face of the earth. But Noah found grace and favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, what's interesting to me is we look at this idea of long-suffering or God being patient with people. In verse 3, and again in 1 Peter chapter 3, we're told that God, in, because God is love and God is patient, the love of God or the love is patient or long-suffering and slow to boil, because God is slow to boil, he gave man 120 years to repent. 120 years. Noah was a preacher of righteousness and warned of the upcoming judgment or impending judgment of God. The Bible says that he warned those around them that they needed to repent from their sin and turn from it, which is what repentance is all about, by the way. You can't say, oh, I'm sorry, God, and keep doing what you're doing and think that you've repented of your sin. The biblical definition is very clear. Confession is agreeing with God what you're doing is wrong and repentance is then turning from it, from sin to God and doing that which is right. In our culture today, we get this flippant attitude of repentance. I said I'm sorry, but you're still doing the same thing. You can say you're sorry, but that doesn't mean you've repented. Saying you're sorry could be because you got caught. Saying you're sorry could be because you're afraid of the consequences. Saying you're sorry could be a whole bunch of emotional reasons. But repenting means, hey, I'm broken of heart, and I know what I did was wrong, and now I need to turn from that, and I need to turn back to God. Noah warned people, and for 120 years, the patience of God, the long-suffering of God, the slowness to boil of God was demonstrated, and that judgment was coming. Man, are there areas, and I think about this for a second, and realize, you know, how incredible God's patience is toward undeserving, rebellious people. Think of yourself at this moment in time. Are there areas of your life that are not pleasing before God? We give them all kind of names, but God just calls it this. Is there an area of your life that you're guilty of sin? Sin is falling short of the standard of God. We say, well, I've fallen in that area, or I've got this little character flaw. No, it's sin. And until we start calling it what it is, we can never deal with it accordingly. It's sin. Are you guilty of sin in your life before God? And seemingly, God hasn't done anything to you yet. That, my friend, is an example of the patience and long-suffering and the slowness of God to boil in your life. How many times have you been guilty, and I know I've been guilty, and I go, wow, you know what, nothing's happened to me yet. I wonder if what God's saying is true. God says, don't be deceived. I'm not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he's going to reap. Don't let my slowness to judge you confuse you of my justice but to turn you toward my patience because God is love and the love of God is patient long suffering slow to boil see you know what's interesting as I think about this see God's long suffering or his slowness to boil gives us time to confess our sin and to repent from it before he steps in to do something about it my friend, I will challenge you and encourage you to recognize the truth of the Word of God, and that's this. If you are guilty of sin in your life, judgment is coming one day. Why not judge yourself before God steps in to judge you? See, God gives us the opportunity to do that. 
Judge yourself, he says, lest I must step in and judge you. Think about it, how many times as children or young people growing up that you did things that were wrong and you, you don't see, seemingly you never got caught. But you realized you pushed the envelope to the point, man, if I keep doing this, I'm going to get caught one day. And you decided at that point, you know what, I'm going to judge myself and I'm going to stop this before trouble comes. God says, praise God. Praise God that you realized and recognized that judgment was coming. And it was only the slowness of God and, and, and His uh, desire to judge you and His patience that allowed you to continue to go in the direction that you went until you realized what you were doing was wrong and you can confess your sin and to turn from it. My encouragement to you and to me is this. Whenever we're guilty of sin before God, judge yourself before God judges you. For 120 years, the patience of God was demonstrated and yet this rebellious generation choose to mock and ridicule and turn their back on God and to mock Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Yeah, when's judgment coming? We live in a world today that does the same thing. Yeah, when's God going to judge the world? And then, you know, we have fanatical people that don't look at the Word of God and they go out on the limb and they say stupid things and they supposedly represent all of Christianity. Jesus is coming back in the year 2000. Well, you know what? Let's just put it this way. Jesus is coming back. But don't start putting dates on it because the Word of God says that only the Father knows when that will happen. So you start to look like an idiot to the world when you start making predictions and claims of when certain things are going to happen. Everything is in God's timing and in His hands and in His control. But I can tell you with authority this, Jesus is coming again. And He will judge the living and the dead. And of His kingdom there will be no end. When that takes place, only God knows and it's in His timing and I'm perfectly content with that answer. But for today, I know this. If I'm guilty of sin, I need to confess my sin because he's faithful and just to, to forgive me and to cleanse me. And I need to repent from it. And I need to turn and walk away from sin and walk back toward God. Consider when God proclaimed his name to Moses as another example. Look at Exodus chapter 34. He referred to his character and his attributes as reflecting patience and long-suffering. Exodus chapter 34, look at verses uh, 5 through 7. In Exodus 34, verses 5 through 7, we read these words. It says, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Moses as he was praying. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, what? Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will be... Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. There are many who like to quote that God is love. But also notice as God tells us who he is and reveals his character to us, he says, not only am I love and gracious and patient, loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, he says, yet yeah, don't miss this either. I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is just and God is love. And there is no contradiction between the two. He is both. And he can be both and it very clearly is taught throughout scripture. God is love and he's patient, long-suffering, slow to boil, slow to anger. He gives us time to repent and to turn to him. 
And yet there's a point in time that comes in the life of each one of us where he says, that is it, I've had enough, and now judgment, my friend. We need to recognize and understand that. Later, Moses took this to heart and he prayed in Numbers 14. He says, the Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but by no means will he clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. He says, pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt even till now. And he prayed about the rebellious heart of those in Israel who God had freed from Egypt. And he saw the rebellion continuing. Even after God had freed them from Egypt, they continued to rebel against them. And Moses prayed, Lord, please remember that you're a patient God. Give us time. Give these people time to, to confess their sin and to repent from it. God, I remember what you told me and I took it to heart that you are a gracious and a loving God and you're kind and you're truth. And I realize that judgment will come one day, but please give these people time. Give them time. The third example of God's patience is found in uh, Psalm 103, if, you've turn, if you'll turn there with me. Psalm 103. In Psalm 103, starting with verse 8, we read these words. It says, He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. The long-suffering of God. It's so often associated in Scripture with his mercy. The fact that he cuts us a break is, indica- is indicative of his patience in our life. The question for us is, as we look at this, is this is true of God, and God has poured his spirit out within our hearts to those who have trusted in Christ, then we also have the capacity, God's capacity to love others through us. The question is, how do I know as a self-examination, an objective examination, how can I know for sure, how can you know for sure that you are patient according to the definition that's given to us by the word of God? Because many of us would think that we are patient. In fact, those who didn't raise their hand believe that you are patient. That you're not impatient people. That you're very patient. You're very tolerant toward others. That you're patient towards people. You're patient toward things. And what what we need to ask and look at is this. How do we know for sure whether or not we are patient according to God's definition? The first thing that we'll notice is this. If you're patient, you'll be slow to anger. If you're patient, you're slow to anger. The word, again, by definition is, it'll take you a long time to boil. Just like water on a stove. It'll take you a long time to boil. You don't just fly off the handle. You don't react instantly. You don't jump to conclusions. You're not in a rush to judgment. It takes you a long time to boil. You check into the facts. You look at things. You know, I've heard it's been said that a character of man is defined by and displayed when he's around a woman, a child, and a flat tire. And I like that. Because the question for you is this, you know, what is it in your life that sets you off to where you become angry almost instantaneously? See, the Bible says, if indeed you are patient, you will be slow to boil. 
When we ask those around you, which is probably the best way to really tell whether or not you're patient or not, but if we ask those in your life and said, is Chuck patient? Does he jump off the handle? Does he jump to conclusion? Is he quick to react? Is he quick to be negative? Is he quick to anger? And you say, oh, no, you know what? Usually he'll check into things. He'll check into the facts. He won't jump to conclusions. I mean, that is the telltale sign of whether or not you're a patient person. Are you slow to anger? The Bible says if we're slow to anger, we'll have great understanding. In Proverbs 14, 29, it says, He who is slow to wrath has great understanding, but he who is impulsive exalts foolishness. Here is the self-examination. How many times in your life have you jumped to conclusions, gotten angry, assumed something, only to find out that that impulsiveness made you look like a fool? Oh, you, sir. That is, I, I just, I'm amazed at that. Um, but, but have you been there? You jumped to a conclusion. Who left the bike in the driveway? Did you leave your bike in the driveway again? There's a bike in the driveway? I didn't have the bike. You know, or the, or the, the father who, uh, the story was told where, where he was uh, yelling at his son because he kept telling his son, don't play, don't play on the bank. And, and they lived on a piece of property. There was a bank that led down to the river. Don't play on the bank. Don't play on the bank. And he went out there and he saw his son. He was playing on the bank. He's screaming at him. What are you playing on the bank for? I told you not to be playing on the bank. And his son looked up and he went, what's a bank? You know, the only bank he'd ever went to with his father was to go to the bank and make a deposit or make some withdrawals. He didn't know what a bank was, but his dad was screaming and yelling, don't play on the bank. I wasn't. The bank's downtown. You usually have to drive me there. I'm thinking I'm pretty safe. But we do that, don't we? I mean, but see, that impulsiveness, and it gets embarrassing. Oh, here's a good one. So last night we're out to dinner. And so we come home and, uh, and, and there's a race to see who gets to the restrooms first. Um, which, which would be bathrooms, I guess. Um, but uh, so I was downstairs, I had a phone call, and so I'm losing the race. And I'm trying to cut the phone call real short. So I go up and our, our master bedroom has a bathroom. And I see that there's a light on and the door shut. And my son ran in ahead of me. And I'm like, Ryan, what are you doing in there? And I hear from the other end of the house, got you. He just ran up, put the light on, shut the door, and then went into their bathroom. I'm like. Love is patient. If you're slow to anger, you also avoid hostile arguments. A wrathful man stirs up strife. But he who is slow to anger allays contention. Any fool, the Bible says, can start an argument. But only a wise person can allay contention. Are you argumentative? You start arguments. I mean, I know people that are like, they love it. They like, if you say something's white, they'll say it's black. You say it's up, they'll say it's down. They don't even know. The only thing they're saying is the opposite of what you say because they like to argue. The Bible says that's a foolish person, that it causes us to be quick to anger. You control your spirit. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules a city, uh, rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Can you imagine? God gives more uh, uh, um, commendation to those who can control their spirit than to those who can uh, take over a whole city. That's amazing. You overlook transgressions. The discretion of man makes him slow to anger. We choose to overlook something that could have made us angry. 
We choose to just let it slide, so to speak, rather than make an issue of it. We make a deliberate choice to just turn our head from something that in the past would have caused us to want to get into an argument with somebody. If we're patient, we're slow to anger. If we're patient, we're also merciful and compassionate. God is merciful, compassionate. He doesn't deal with our sins uh, with strict justice in every case. Think about Psalm 103. He goes, hey, he knows that we're but death. He knows our frame. He knows we're fragile. He knows that we're, we're like sheep, that sometimes we're just absolutely stupid. He knows that. And because he knows that, he is gracious and merciful and compassionate. Think about this for a second. Do you realize, think about it, do you realize there isn't anything that you say or do that God doesn't know that you're going to say or do it before you do it? Psalm 139. He knows our thoughts before yet we even have one, and therefore he knows what we'll do even before we do it. If it was God, if he was so strict to judge us, the instant we did that which we were thinking and immediately did it, he would step in and judge us and zap us right on the spot. How patient is God? I'll tell you this, he's patient and merciful and compassionate that he knows what we're thinking before we think it. He knows what we're going to do before we do it. And even after we do it, oftentimes he gives us time to confess it and to repent from it. Wow. Could you imagine? Could you imagine living in a world where the instant you, got, the instant you did something wrong, you got caught? The instant that you said a lie, zap! <laughs> Can you imagine? It'd be like listening to some sports highlights or lowlights when they're bleeping out every other word. Bleep, 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 bleep. bleep, bleep, bleep. It'd be like, man, you start to have a conversation with somebody and God just went, that's a lie! Bang! I'll bet you it would be a lot slower to speak <laughs> and quicker to hear and slow to anger. Huh? But see, God could do that, couldn't he? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. But you know what the irony is? Why do we? Isn't that amazing? God doesn't do it, but we do it. The Apostle Paul saw this characteristic of God's long-suffering in his own life when he shares his testimony with us in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12 through 17. We read these words. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first... Jesus Christ might show all patience as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever and every redeemed person in the world should say amen. You see, Paul said that God chose him to be an example to the world of how God can take somebody who is so lost and so hateful and so full of anger and so full of rage that he even persecuted believers and he heartedly approved the stoning of Stephen as the first martyr in the church and he stood by and he heartedly approved of that. That God can take that person but because he is rich in mercy and compassionate and slow to boil in anger and redeem him, reveal himself to him so that Paul fell on his knees, Saul of Tarsus, and said, Lord, forgive me for I am a sinner and I'm not worthy of your forgiveness. 
The Bible says that Paul realized that God used him as an example to the rest of the world that's out there that says, if that man can be saved for what he had done, then certainly there is hope for me. God forgive me, for I too am a sinner. You see, the testimony of every believer should be that of the, in the world around us. That if a person can look at me and realize that, you know what, if they can see me and see God slowly, that he's slow to boil, that he's patient, that he's long-suffering, and that he could redeem me, call me to himself, cause me by his mercy and grace to be born again because of faith in Jesus Christ, then there's hope for every person in your life. There's hope for your family members. There's hope for your co-workers. There's hope for your teammates. There's hope for your neighbors. There's nobody that's beyond hope because what makes you think that you aren't beyond hope? That arrogance that somehow we were better than someone around us and that's why God saved us is foolishness in the sight of God. There is nothing in any of us that is worthy of being redeemed and saved but for the compassion and the mercy and the grace of God and that he's long-suffering and slow to boil before he'll step in to judge us. God wishes that none of us should perish, but all come into everlasting life through faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I was the chief sinner, and I knew it, and God knew it, and he chose to love me anyway. Wow, that's some good stuff. How about you? Are you quick to condemn others? Are you quick to find blame or fault? Is there a rush to judgment? Or do you reflect God's patience in how you treat others? See, as one who has come to faith in Jesus, patience is not an option. It is evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in one's life. It is not an option when the Word of God says, be patient with all. It's a command. It's not an alternative. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Stop being quick to judge. Stop being quick to condemn. Stop being quick to find blame. But as God is patient, long-suffering, merciful, compassionate. See, these things are hard, aren't they? They're not natural. The natural response is to blame. The natural response is to judge. The natural response is to criticize and condemn. The natural response is not to show mercy and be compassionate. The natural response is to fly off the handle quickly and to become angry before you check in all the response. But we are not to live naturally any longer. We're to live supernaturally. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. And all things pass away and everything becomes new. If God's love is poured out within our hearts, we'll also be willing to forgive others. It's getting harder to forgive others. As God describes his own name and character in Exodus 34, he says that he is forgiving of iniquity. To forgive others in Isaiah 55, 6 through 9 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon his name when he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. Just as the prodigal son returned to the father, he will have mercy on him. He's waiting for us to return to him and he will not turn his back on us. He will not treat us as some relatives or friends or family members have when you've turned to him and said, forgive me for what I've done. And they said, I'll never forgive you for that. God's not like that. He will forgive us as we turn to him. He is, he is filled with mercy. And to our God, 
for he will abundantly par pardon. And then he says this, and it's often taken out of context. He says, my thoughts aren't your thoughts. My ways aren't your ways, says the Lord. For it says, heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts are yours. And in context, he's talking about forgiving one another. He says, my ways and my thoughts aren't like yours. I don't take into an account a wrong suffered. I don't hold things against people that have harmed me or rebelled against me. When they confess their sin and they turn to me, I extend mercy to them and I'm compassionate. I'm not like you people. And thank God he's not. But we need to become more like him. Forgiveness is not the natural response when we're wrong. It's supernatural. And it is possible for those who are in Christ. Consider the words of Jesus. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's difficult, isn't it? If not impossible, without the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives. One man who demonstrated God's love for his enemies is a man, his name was Richard Warmbrand. He was a Romanian pastor who was imprisoned and tortured for his faith. He lost both parents, several sisters, a brother, and children during the Nazi Holocaust. During those terrible days, he was introduced toward a Roma to a Romanian soldier who boasted how he had killed Jews, even those who were holding little children in their arms at the time. This man did not realize that Warmbrand was a Jew. Since Warmbrand is a good German name and he was a Christian pastor, the soldier assumed that Richard was not Jewish. During the soldier's boast of cruelty against Jews, <clears throat> Warmbrand did not say a word. Instead, he invited the man to his house. The soldier accepted the invitation. When they arrived, Warmbrand explained that his wife was sick in bed. It says, after conversing late at night, the Romanian pastor said, Sir, I have something to tell you but promise that you will listen to me quietly for at least 10 minutes. After 10 minutes, you can say whatever you'd like. And the soldier readily agreed. Warmbrand then said, In the other room, my wife is sleeping. She is Jewish, and I am Jewish too. Her family, which is also my family, perished in one of the big Nazi concentration camps. You boasted that you have killed in the same concentration camp where our family was sent, so you are presumably the murderer, the very murderer of my family. Now I propose to you an experiment. We will go into the other room and we'll tell my wife who you are. I can assure you my wife will not say one word of reproach, will not look angrily at you and will smile at you as at every guest. She will consider you to be an honored guest. Although she is sick, she will go and prepare for you coffee and some cookies. You will be received just like everybody else. In my wife, who is only, if my wife, who is only human, can do this, if she can love you like this, knowing what you have done and can forgive you, then how much more will Jesus, who is love? The tall German soldier tore at his jacket, crying, What have I done? What have I done? I am guilty of so much blood. This man, who had never heard a prayer before, knelt with the pastor and asked God for forgiveness and invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of his life. Then the two men came into the room where Mrs. Warmbrand lay. She had heard nothing about what had happened in the next room, but when her husband woke her, she did exactly as he described she would. When she heard that the soldier had repented of his sins, she fell around his neck and they both wept. Pastor Warmbrand writes of the scene, It was a scene of love like in heaven. That is what Jesus can do, for he is love. In Matthew 18, Jesus gave an illustration by story of a man who had been forgiven of a great debt and yet held another accountable for the debt of just a few pennies. And he said, for those of us who are unwilling to forgive, that our Heavenly Father will turn us over to the torturers or the tormentors. 
And I realize in conversation with many people that some of us have been held captive by those tormentors and torturers because we've, 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 we have refused to allow God's love to flow through us as the Bible says that it can and he wants it to. We refuse to forgive. Why? Because we take into account a wrong suffered. We hold it against people and say that I'll never forgive you for that. But see, the point is this, is that while we may never forgive people, thankfully God is always open to forgiving those who come to him and confess their sin. See, as those who are in Christ, it is possible through the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the life of a believer to forgive even the most unforgivable of all transgressions against us. If this man and this woman can forgive a Nazi soldier for murdering their family viciously, it is a testimony of the greatness of the love, that love truly is the greatest, and it's greater than anything else, because through love we can forgive those who before we thought we could never forgive. See, God's love is patient, and it's demonstrated when we're slow to anger, when we're merciful and compassionate, when we're willing to forgive, when we're willing to endure the faults and the weaknesses of others. How many times have you said to yourself, I'm not putting up with this anymore? You see, the Bible says that we're to bear with one another. Ephesians 4, 2 says, with long-suffering, bearing with one another. Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. That we're to bear with one another. Why? Because we know that we all have faults. But how easy it is to hold the faults of others against them while we want to have no one hold any of our faults against us. Why? Because after all, we're not perfect. I'm only human. What do you expect? Well, you know what? By the same judgment that you judge yourself, let's start judging others. Yes, people are only human. Yes, people are faulty. Yes, people do make mistakes. So why are we in such a hurry to judge them and condemn them and criticize them? The Bible says that we are to endure the faults and the weaknesses of others. That it is less than loving when we get to a point in our life with other people where we say, you know what, I have had it, I'm not putting up with them anymore. Wow. We'd all be in deep, deep trouble if God got to that point in our lives, wouldn't he? Whoa. Can you imagine if God said, you know what, Chuck, I am so sick and tired of you. I am not putting up with you anymore. Thank God that he's merciful. Thank God that he's compassionate. Thank God that he's always willing to forgive. Thank God that he's willing to endure or to bear with us while he sees the progress that he's making to conforming us into the image of his son. And the last thing, and a very practical one, is this. God's love is patient. It's willing to listen to others. God's love is willing to listen. And if you stop and think about it, we need to be willing to listen. Because if we're not going to jump to conclusions, we need to listen to what other people have to say before we come to any sense of judgment, right? We have to be willing to listen. We have to be slow to speak. And what? Quick to hear. Slow to anger. We have to be willing to listen. Tell me. We got time. I got all the time in the world. Explain to me why you did what you did or what you were thinking or what was going on. Help me understand. You know what? And for a person that's willing to listen, the other person may be willing to tell you. In Ephesians 26, 3, the Apostle Paul was standing before King Agrippa, giving a defense. And he said this, and I love this. He said, especially you, because you are an expert in all customs and questions, which you have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg that you listen to me patiently. 
saying, being the wise person that you are, King Agrippa, I beg that you just listen to me and hear me out. What he was saying was, you know, a foolish person is impulsive and jumps to conclusions and lives to regret it. But being the wise person that you are, I know that you'll hear me out. Isn't that great? God's love is patient, slow to anger, merciful and compassionate, willing to forgive, willing to endure the faults and the weaknesses of others, and willing to listen to others as they give a defense. In conclusion, I want to challenge you and also warn you, although God's mercy towards his people extends throughout eternity, his mercy towards the, un, toward the unrepentant sinners and his patience does not last forever. From a historical uh, point of view, before Alexander the Great would lay siege to a city, he would set up a light giving notice to those who lived within the city that if they came to him while the light was still burning, he would spare their lives. But once the light was out, no mercy could be expected. Isn't that interesting? He would put a light up on a hill, and all those in the city that were about to be conquered, his light was to say, if you will come to me, I will spare you, and I will show you mercy. But if you do not, then judgment is, is imminent. Judgment is coming. Isn't that amazing how God himself said that Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness didn't comprehend it? That he goes on to say that as believers that we are to be light and salt, that we're to be light set upon a hill and you can't cover it and you can't hide it, but that we are to be light. We are not the light, but we're to be light in darkness. That we are to be used by God to, to express to the world around us that God, even though he's merciful and compassionate and he's slow to anger, there is still a point in time where he will step in and judge. That it is our responsibility to warn those people of the judgment of God just as it is our responsibility to show them of the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus. See, as we live a life that we're slow to anger and merciful and compassionate, that we're willing to forgive, we're willing to endure the faults of others, we're willing to listen to people, we will be a light in darkness. And people will be drawn to the light and they want to know what is so different about you. Why aren't you flying off the handle? Why aren't you quick to judge? Why don't you react the way that you do? How can you ever forgive that person? How can you even listen to that nonsense? And they go on and on and on. That's not natural. No, it's not natural. It's supernatural. And if it wasn't for the fact that I've experienced this first in my relationship with God and know that God is love and that love is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit, that I can love you as God wants me to love you as he loves you, then you know what? This isn't possible. We're to recognize and understand the time is urgent to call people to repentance. We don't know if we'll have tomorrow. We don't know if Jesus will come back today. The Word of God doesn't tell us that. It just tells us to be prepared and to be ready for His coming. We don't know if the next conversation that we have with an unrepentant person, maybe the last conversation that we ever have to express to them the love of God that's found in Christ. We don't know that. And as we approach or enter this new millennium, we're reminded that our Lord Jesus may indeed return at any moment. And yet we are to be used by God while we're to be ready. We're to warn those around us who have not heard of his mercy or his grace or have not heeded his call. And also in light of God's mercy to us, our hearts should be filled with gratitude, praise, and worship. And it should extend beyond our own comfortable Christian circles to reach out to people around us that God brings into our path whether it's in our families, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, whether it's on a team, whether it's in our neighborhoods. We are to be a light that shines in darkness. I'm going to challenge us and encourage all of us and warn all of us that judgment is coming and God's mercy, though it is slow to boil and slow to anger, is imminent. And there's a day coming where he says, I've had enough. We need to be used by him. We need to be, not be so complacent any longer. 
But I would challenge us as we look into this new, this new year, this new day, this new week, I don't know, I don't know how much time we have, but to get serious about our walk with Christ so that others can see that we can be forgiven. They can be forgiven. Know how far they think they are away from God, that none of them are beyond the loving reach of God himself. And we should exemplify Christ's love in our life by the way we treat others. How we treat others is indicative of whether we've come to a right relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Our Father, we just thank you for your word. We just thank you for the challenge that you've given us. God, help us to see people around us as you see them and as you see us. Help us to be slow to anger, to be merciful and compassionate, to be willing to forgive, to be willing to endure the faults and the weaknesses of those around us, and to be willing to listen and not rush to judgment, not be quick to speak, but slow to speak, quick to hear, and slow to anger. And as the Apostle Paul said, Lord, we just praise you and we thank you that while we were chief sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. And that we are a trophies, an example of your grace and mercy and your long-suffering and your patience. God, may we now, because the love of God has been poured out richly into our hearts through your spirit, may we demonstrate the same love to those that you bring into our life so that they'll be drawn to your forgiveness and your love and the mercy of God found in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.